0: Bible Church of Buford, on the web at wagp.net. This is The Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Broge. Dr. Brogi is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Buford, South
1: Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980.
0: Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogi. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to The Bible Line. If you are a first-time listener, for the next hour we'll be taking people's questions. People have questions every week. Maybe it's a particular issue in your life and you're looking for biblical counsel or some doctrinal uh Conundrum that you're facing, whatever it might be, if we can be of help, all you need to do again the 843 exchange is 843 525 1859, or of course, our toll free 877 number. It's easy to remember the call letters WAGP 980. When you call, we do give preference to live and dictated questions, though people also email us here into the studio and the email address is TBL. That stands for the Bible line at wagp.net. Sometimes people say, you know, I I have questions, but I can't always listen because I'm at work. Well, sooner or later, by God's grace, unless the rapture happens first, we hope to answer your questions. And when they are answered, we'll send you back uh, the day it was answered, and you can uh, go to the audio file and listen uh, to your answer. All right, with that said, Let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning.
2: All right, good morning, Pastor Carl. Our first question comes from Skyler, and they write, In the book of Job, chapter two clearly points out that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar sat with Job seven days and seven nights. Beginning in Chapter 4, they begin to speak and contend with Job with back and forth dialogue through Chapter 25. In Chapter 32, Elihu begins to scold Job. In the end, in chapter forty-two, God addresses Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, but no mention is made of Elihu. My question is as follows: After the seven-day period of silence, when they began to speak, is there any indication as to how long the dialogue lasted, and was it all one conversation over a few hours? Why was God? Why did God not address Elihu?
0: Well, those are some excellent, excellent questions. Um, how long he suffered. Well, we don't know exactly. Uh, We know that the suffering, of course, began with the death of his servant and the loss of his livestock. It got progressively worse. His children and physical afflictions came. And and Scripture indicates here in the first chapter that that happened in one day. While he was still speaking, another came. And while he was still speaking, another came. And while he was still speaking, another also came. Boom, 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 boom. So it appears that happened uh, in in a singular day. Between chapters 1 and 2, there's some kind of space of time. If you remember the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, that is uh, those, excuse me, I'm sorry, they had to be contended with, and how much time there is between chapters 1 and 2 is a mystery. We don't know specifically. Um, So there's the day of his calamity. That's in Job 1. There's some kind of a gap between Job 1 and 2. How much time did it take for his friends, A, to hear about it, for B, to arrive? Were they local? Um, they were designated with different terms, and they potentially could come from three or four different places. How long did it take to speak? We, we don't know. Uh, we do know, as you noted, that for seven days they just sat in silence, and uh, they were, I suppose, at that point at least being compassionate, maybe also overwhelmed, Um So with that said, we do know that um, there was some time that transpired. Uh, There's been all kinds of suggestions. It, It certainly, it appears, would take at least a couple of weeks. Some have said it took two years. Some have said it took 42 months trying to connect it to the Great Tribulation period. Again, that's all speculation. We do know it happened, and we know it took some time to happen. Uh, In terms of Elihu, let me go to that side of the question. Elihu, of course, he he comes to comfort Job, and uh, he comes in response to listening uh, to these guys blowing all kinds of smoke, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And he waited out of respect. The Bible says he was younger. And so he waited for these older men to speak. And then finally, when he could take no more, uh, he's um, convinced that while these guys are— speaking they're not speaking with wisdom so i've turned here to job 32 and verse 12 and we read there again elihu is speaking i also paid close attention to you but indeed there was no one who refuted job not one of you answered his words so that's his initial response to these uh, three friends and then in the next chapter same verse thirty-three, twelve. behold let me tell you you are not writing this for god is greater than man And then in the next chapter here in 34.12, surely God will not act wickedly and the Almighty will not pervert justice. So obviously he condemns Job's three friends that they are misrepresenting God, they're misrepresenting God's justice, they're misrepresenting God's greatness, and they're misrepresenting uh, Job himself. And so he gives this four-part speech. It's a great speech to listen to and it's interesting to um, compare and contrast uh, his counsel versus the three friends. Um, They determine all sin leads to suffering, where Elihu reasons no suffering can lead to sin if it's not responded to correctly. Uh, The three friends say, well, all suffering is a result of punishment. And Elihu rightly argues, no, that's not true. Some suffering is protective in nature. They say it's punitive, he says it's educational. They say Job needs to repent. Elihu's emphasis is that Job needs to learn. And so there are a couple different viewpoints here and I'm reading now in Job 42, God's response. It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against you and your two friends. So it appears that Eliphaz was a leader. And so God spoke to him, and then in reference to his two friends, because you've not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So who's correct, Elihu or his three friends? Well, other scriptures indicate that uh, even everything Elihu spoke was not necessarily accurate. Uh, God certainly does use uh, trials uh, that he dials from heaven, not simply as punitive, uh, to rebuke those whom he loves, but sometimes is instructive. And sometimes God's people, you know, someone's going through a hard time, and we say, well, what sin do they have in their life? And it may be absolutely none at all. They may be right in the center of God's will, but nonetheless they are experiencing suffering because God is either being instructive to them personally, maybe sometimes in terms of ministry to other people. That's how Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 1, He said, the suffering that you're going through and the comfort that God brought you in the midst of that suffering. One of the reasons is so that you can comfort others who are going through similar suffering. When you've walked in someone else's moccasins, you have a sense, you have a feel for where they've been and what they are experiencing. And so, on the one hand, um, he wasn't totally accurate, but on the other hand, many of the things that he said were absolutely true. And he represents God not simply as a, a, a judge out to club Job, but as a caring Heavenly Father who, who loves him. And so I think for that reason, God doesn't rebuke Elihu. It's not that he uh, is necessarily endorsing everything he said, but comparatively speaking, when compared to the three friends, they misrepresented both God and Job. And so a direct rebuke came from God Almighty on them. Anyway, it's a it's a good question. Book of Job is a challenging book. All right, let's go to the next one.
2: All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning, we will go to the phone lines. Pastor Carl, I believe we have Stephanie. Good morning, Stephanie. You're live with Pastor Carl.
0: Go Hi,
1: ahead, thank Stephanie. thank you so much. Yeah. Um, I have kind of a, a reconciling question. Um, in Acts 7, when Stephen is giving his sermon, verse 19, he's talking about um, when the babies were killed um, in Exodus 1, um, and they were thrown into the Nile. So Stephen says... um,
0: It was he who took shrewd advantage advantage of of our race. ...they
1: would abandon their infants in the Nile. Right. So it sounds like the Israelites... Killed their children, but in Exodus,
0: I thought that. Well, it's a good they, question. So it's divine commentary. Yeah, I know exactly what you're asking because obviously they were looking for um, birth mothers, so to speak, um, who were involved in the birth of a baby uh, and those who would help in the process. You know, they wanted to make sure that, oh, look, we don't want these babies disposed of, and so how did they dispose of them? And I think you have fuller commentary here in Acts 7. Uh, and again, the Scripture never contradicts. There could be an either-or or both-and. Uh, there could be immediate retribution where the baby was immediately executed, or it could be much like in China. Uh, the baby is immediately swept away from the mother, and brought out to a place unknown by the mother where the baby is left in exposure to die. Uh, The end result is the same. And as many many of you know, there are Christian ministries that rescue these babies. And of course, with the one-child policy, because uh, they had a desire to propagate their own family name, this often happened to little girls. And it continues to do that, though the Chinese have recognize you know when you mess with god's way of creation you create your own problems and so there are a great shortage of women to marry in china and so they've changed that policy and of course it's increased uh, the the amount of rape sadly across china and uh, so i i it, it's an either or or a both and and i would tend to go with the both hand in light of what i read in exodus in light of what Stephen tells us here in Acts 7.19. Good question. Let's go to the next.
2: alright two five one eight five nine. Our next question comes from Linda out of Savannah, Georgia, and she would like to know what version of the Bible will will you be using on the Israel tour, Pastor Carl?
0: Yeah, so I will primarily be using the New American Standard Bible. And so we are taking 58 people to Israel and excited about that. God willing, we'll, we'll do another one in approximately 18 months. Uh, if that's something you're interested in. But for Linda, yes, I I typically use the New American Standard. I I do believe it's, in many ways, the gold standard in terms of uh, texts that are available in English uh, for a pastor who teaches exegetically, verse by verse, and takes every word seriously. It it is, in many ways, the most precise. Uh, The NIV is kind of a Paraphrase, and it was very popular. It lost a lot of popularity in evangelicalism when they bled it together with the TNIV, which was kind of a gender neutral Bible, um, and and in the course of not wanting to use, say, male pronouns, um, so as not, to not be uh, offensive, they changed he singular to they in places, change the meanings of uh, verses and. And so they combined a little bit of that in the the new New American Standard that came out in 2011. Uh, That led to higher sales with the ESV, and the ESV is very good. I I don't think it's as good as the New New American Standard. And I I think it's interesting that those pastors like myself that are known for teaching word by word uh, the Bible, even some that you'll listen to here in WAGP, uh, David Jeremiah, um, John MacArthur, um, Erwin Lutzer, and others, they all use the New American Standard because of its preciseness. So, so that's what I'll be using. But you can bring any Bible you want, and uh, you're going to get just as much out of it. Uh, and if there's an issue you know, in the text, I usually raise it. And sometimes there's not, again, a singular word that will translate, um, say, with the New American Standard. I, I, I opened uh, the message today, Study and Show Yourself Approved. Uh, I was quoting the New King James, the Old King James. Uh, The NAS says, be diligent to show yourself approved. Well, what is it, study or be diligent? It's actually both, and there's not a singular um, word in English that— uh, communicates uh, the the study, but not just any kind of study—a diligent study. So sometimes when there's that kind of issue at hand, I'll, I'll, I'll actually reference other texts. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next.
2: All right, eight four three five two five one eight five nine. We will go back to the phone lines, Pastor Carl. I believe we have Jack from Bluffton. Good morning, Jack. You are live with Pastor Carl. Good
0: morning. Yeah, you're cutting out, Jack. We can't. I only say that because.
1: I'm particularly concerned that whatever I say during that hour or so, I want to make sure is correct. We were discussing spiritual gifts, and I made the comment that I felt there were some spiritual gifts that were given at a specific time early on, such as apostleship. Uh, Another one I mentioned was healing. One of my uh, members of my class took exception and said he believed that healing was still a spiritual gift. I told him that God can do whatever God wants to do, but at this point, I'm convinced in my own mind that healing can take place if God wants it, but not specifically as a spiritual gift. I would like your learned opinion on that,
0: Pastor. Well, it's a good question. I did my doctoral dissertation on the subject of spiritual gifts. It was entitled um, A Spiritual Gifts... A ministry for the local church it was the discovery the longer titles the discovery and the implementation of a spiritual gifts ministry for the local church and so when you think of apostle let's just take that one to start there are by the way 19 depending on how you take hospitality 20 spiritual gifts in the New Testament uh, most would say 20 spiritual gifts With that said, most who take the scriptures seriously, who are willing to place experience under the authority of Scripture, will say that there's at least 16. Some would maybe even lower that, depending on how they define what a spiritual gift is. Now, you mentioned, for instance, that um, apostle. uh, You're right in the sense that there is no office of apostle. But the New Testament, again, makes a distinction between the gift of apostle and the office of apostle. To serve in the office of apostle, you had to have been personally selected by the Lord Jesus. You had to have seen him in his resurrected body. And if those things were true, then you would do 2 Corinthians twelve twelve the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle can do. If you remember when Paul defended his apostleship, Against those who said, well, Paul's a Johnny-come-lately, he's not a real apostle. And there were some folks who had come into the Corinthian church claiming that they were apostles. And Paul says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. In other words, if everyone could do the signs, wonders, and miracles then an, uh, that an apostle did, then uh, his argument would be meaningless that this was a defense of his apostleship and then there is even another qualification for someone to take the 12th seat because jesus gave a promise concerning the uh, judgment of the 12 tribes of the nation of israel and a special role that the apostles will play during the millennial kingdom of the messiah and so they're in acts in addition It had to be someone who accompanied the Lord Jesus. That would not obviously include Paul from the time of John's baptism all the way to his ascension into heaven. So Paul could be called an apostle because he'd seen the risen Christ. He'd been personally selected by Christ, and he did the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle could do. Which really eliminates a lot of the claims that people are making today. You know, whether it's an Oral Roberts who once claimed to raise someone from the dead, or even some people in this movement called Uh, Bethel. Bethel and Hillsong have kissed up to one another. Um, They started apparently well, at least with some, well, Hillsong maybe did, but they've drifted. And that's why we don't use their music, uh, because we're underwriting and supporting them. Uh, financially, every time you click one of their songs in your church. But they've been teaching all kinds of false doctrine, including that there is a current expression of the office of apostle. That's just false. Uh, that's, that's heretical. Um, but then there is indeed the gift of apostle, and that is different. The word apostle, apostolos, literally means a sent one. And it's like the word for deacon diaconus. Uh, The word diaconess can be used in a formal sense of someone who serves in the office of deacon, but it can be used in an informal sense. He that would be great among you must be the deacon, the servant of all. Now, that's not in reference to a particular office that um, must be met by certain qualifications based on 1 Timothy 3, but that's something that is to be true of all Christians. In fact, in many... um, Bibles that are used around the world in different languages, they'll just translate it the same, uh, whether it's the office or just being a servant. In most English Bibles, to distinguish that there is something that is in view that's different, uh, they use a different English word because the context demands it. Uh, that can be helpful. Sometimes it can not be so helpful. So, for instance, if you're looking, to say, for a deacon He should meet the qualifications, but he should be, in his lifestyle, a servant. In other words, you don't appoint someone, say, to the office of deacon where that's not true of him. Well, take the word apostle. That, too, can be used in a technical sense of someone who serves in the office. And there are no apostles today, obviously, because no one can have seen the risen Lord and meet those qualifications. But it's used in a non-technical sense. So Epaphroditus is called an apostle. A messenger a sent one and so there is that gift of people who are sent to the church and very often the gift of apostle would express itself today in church planning uh, someone comes they're eagerly wanting to establish an indigenous church amongst the people but once the church is up and running and there's proper leadership they're ready to move on and to do it all over again uh, that's, that's a common expression of the gift of apostleship, and sometimes there are people even within a local church who see a need, and they want to get that ministry up and running to meet the need, but once it's done, they want to pass the baton of leadership to someone else who can manage it, run it, and hopefully uh, do a great job with it. Uh, in terms of healing, uh, God still heals today. The question is, is the gift of healing done? And I would say no. And again, people who typically say the gift of healing is present today along with the gift of miracles, one, they don't understand 2 Corinthians 12, 12, and nor do they uh, understand the scope of biblical history. God didn't always do miracles in the course of biblical history. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, none of those great men, those four patriarchs ever did a miracle, and yet uh, they were great men of God when you think about uh the first people in scripture doing miracles you come to moses and you come to joshua who takes the baton from moses and for a short time does miracles as they enter into the promised land hundreds and hundreds of years go by no one does a miracle until elijah the prophet and elisha who comes after elijah j comes before s that's a good way to keep them in order chronologically they do a series of miracles and now there are some people who see miracles, Daniel saw a miracle done, like, much like we could potentially see a miracle done today. We could potentially watch God supernaturally heal, and he does on occasion, um, but that's very different from it being done through an individual. So after Elijah and Elijah go off the scene, you know, Isaiah never did a miracle, Ezekiel never did a miracle. Malachi never did a miracle. Zephaniah, Zechariah, they never did miracles. And yet they were great men of God, prophets of God. The next cluster of miracles comes with Christ and his apostles. Sometimes people want to claim spirituality by doing a miracle or healing someone. And let me just say that Jesus said there was never a man born of a woman greater than John the Baptist. Um, He'll go on, of course, to say that uh, the one who's in the kingdom, who's least in the kingdom, is greater than John, because John, of course, never lived to, 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 to reach Pentecost. But I say John because John never did a miracle. What did he do? Well, the most important thing he did is he, he prepared the way for the coming of Messiah, and he pointed men to Jesus. And that's one of the greatest things a Christian can do today. So I hate to say that, uh, one of your friends is, is uh, a little confused, but on the other hand, he's right. What I would suggest to you is you might consider taking my spiritual gifts class that's offered at the Institute of Biblical Studies that you can find at searchthescriptures.org. And if you don't have time to work through the whole course, you might want to at least work through the section that deals with the signed gifts in the New Testament. And there are four specific, miracles healings, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. Some, typically the same, are saying, well, tongues is available today. Well, it's not. It was a unique gift to the New Testament era while the canon of Scripture was still being produced. In terms of prophecy, there was a futuristic side to it. That side of the gift is no longer present. Why? Because the canon of Scripture is closed, though there might be a preaching side to prophecy today. And so... I say all that to say if you really want to study in depth uh, what what you're actually studying when you take that course is the appendix to my doctoral dissertation. I wanted to have something when I was all done with it, not just some dissertation that got dusty on a shelf, but something I could use for ministry and others would benefit from. And so that 128-page course, including a spiritual gifts inventory, that someone can take online. The computer will score it for you. Again, it's searchthescriptures.org uh, where you can take that test and it could potentially identify what your gift might be dependent largely on how much someone has grown spiritually. But definitely work through this section. I think it's a uh, handout six um, that deals with, section six of the course that deal with sign gifts in the New Testament. And I think that will really be clear and crisp and you'll have a very cogent response but I don't deal say with apostleship there but I deal with it in an earlier section of the course. Good question. Let's go to the next.
2: All right, 8435251859. Five, We're going to stay with the phone lines Pastor Carl. I believe we have Anthony. Good morning, Anthony. You're alive with Pastor Carl.
0: Good morning, Pastor Carl. Hey Anthony, good to hear your uh, voice. What's I have going a on? A
1: question this morning. By the way of Maybe two or three examples, if I could, okay? Okay. Um, If there is someone who is a, a Christian, and I think we had a case, not a case, but someone or some people like this in the church where they were working, selling beer, selling wine as their job, and they got out of it, good to go then we have some folks where of course like you say we have a lot of folks baby here that has been divorced or getting divorced and then we have another example where when you preach you says like uh, for women who have children they should be home with their children is all these things living in sin? Shall we take um, um, uh, ties from them if it's wrong? Or it, yeah. is it a gray area, or is it, I mean, not all of the gray area, but is like, is some of it supposed to be, if somebody might take it as a gray area and not right or wrong?
0: Do you... Yeah, no, it's question? a good question. Yeah, so there's a difference between a say church discipline issue versus a an issue of personal growth and sanctification when people come into the church today and of course more and more people are coming out of a society and a culture that is now post-christian if someone joined a evangelical bible believing church 50 years ago they were far more christianized than someone is today 50 years ago the majority of women stayed at home, raised their own children. Uh, That began to change after World War II, but it progressively changed in the 70s and the 80s, where it became more and more the norm. And now I think it's like 23% of women in America only stay at home and raise their children. So that's becoming a minority position. So just to take this issue to start, when people come into the church, uh, they are you know, converted many times that we win them to Jesus, but there's a spiritual period of growth. And how do you grow? Well, your mind has to be renewed. As your mind is renewed, then you're able to um, find what God's will is and what God's plan is. So is it God's plan for a woman to be a worker at home? Well, that's plainly what the book of Titus said, And, you know, again, the church growth experts would say, well, if you teach that pastor, you're going to lose market share and you're going to lose potential members. Well, so be it. Uh, my, My job, my responsibility as a pastor is not to tickle people's ears and tell them what they want to hear. My responsibility is to tell people what God's word says they should hear. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women, and here's the curriculum, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home. Um, oikos ergos. It's two words bled together. Uh, ampel uh, ergos would be a vine worker. What does a vine worker work? In a vineyard. Uh, geo is the word, we get our word geography for, from it, and it's the word for farmer. A Geo ergos would be a farm worker. Where does a farm worker work? <laughs> On a farm. Where does a home worker work? In ergos, oikos, at home. Now, you can be at home and not necessarily be a home worker. Uh, some women don't use their time well, but to be sensible, pure workers at home. That's God's ideal. We've jettisoned that ideal. And largely today, people have pursued a career and they've put their children in daycare. Churches run Christian daycares. When I first came and we uh, opened our first building, I got a ton of requests. When are we going to have a daycare center since you know, you've got this building that you can use? and I have no doubt we could have generated10 to15,000 dollars a month in profit after we pay the various workers. It's because I don't want to set a bad example. I don't want to encourage women to do what God says is not his ideal. But again, someone comes into the church. I'm thinking right now of two police officers that were married to each other, and uh, they both um, were converted over in our Bluffton campus, and they're active members in our church. and. And in the process, they discovered that, uh, you know, God really would like me to be at home. And she realized it. He realized it. They understood that was God's ideal. But they made all these moral financial or, obligations. So what do you do? Does she quit work tomorrow? And then you lose your testimony and that you've made this payment and this bill and Again, sadly, people build their whole financial picture many times on two salaries. Even when I do premarital counseling, the guy has to be able to demonstrate that all by himself, he can support this young lady. If he can't demonstrate that to us, then I'm not going to marry him. Oh, he can find someone to marry him. There are pastors who are glad to marry people. They're in their marrying business. I'm not. I'm in the business of building Christian homes, and I want them to be successful. Now, is it wrong for her to work? No. Um, But when children come, uh, then the picture really changes. And so what happens? Well, you know, I got this great job. They give us three weeks, you know, where I can be at home with the baby. And then their heart is turned out, tore out when they have to go bring that baby to a daycare center somewhere. So again, there's a progressive growth issue that is here. And some people blindly have made decisions largely as unregenerate people or largely as untaught Christians, sometimes modeling the example of pastors. Look, if a pastor opens a daycare center that is exclusively for single moms, that's one thing. I don't know of one in America that's, that has that kind of ministry. Maybe there's one out there. I just don't know of one. But, you know, they open a daycare center. What they're basically saying is violate God's Word or their wife works outside the home And they'll reason sometimes, well, I don't make enough money. The church doesn't pay me enough. Then you shouldn't exclusively be a pastor. You need a tent-making ministry until the church is able to bring you to the point where they can meet the needs of you and your family. So that's the way it works. So you need to be careful. We don't need to be judgmental. I would say that most people who join even CBC who are converted, that's that's what they bring to the plate. And I think of this couple, they mapped it out and God took my financial course and they thought it would take them five years before she could come home. They did it, and I think it was just at two years. and might have been slightly under that. God honored their diligence and their desire to do what is right. Drinking, again, a church, I think, will draw a line somewhere. If someone comes and they join as a drunkard, Uh, they're not going to typically allow them into their membership. Why? Because on day one, you'd be inviting them into church discipline. um, But again, they would also show that they didn't really have the signs of repentance. Uh, Can God change a person who's enslaved to alcohol? Yes. Yes, he can. Um, Is drinking a test of membership? No. No. But it should be a test of leadership in churches. You know, I'm disgusted by these young pastors because now they represent maybe 80 or 90 percent of pastors. And I was just in dialogue with someone. They were looking for a pastor in a church in Florida. And they say they can't find a, a pastor who uh, would take the position that uh, he took. And he came out of Adrian Rogers Church. Uh, that said pastors uh, need to model God's ideal and not to use strong drink, which today all the wine and beer, much less the distilled liquors that come a thousand years later, after the Bible's completed, they're all considered strong drink and prohibited for the believer to use. Except, of course, when maybe a hundred years ago you mixed it in a five-to-one ratio like missionaries often did to purify water— um, and so there were some exceptions like to a dying and despairing man, like we'd give painkiller to someone today. But there's a difference between someone having a glass of wine and a beer and in, in, uh, becoming a member of the church versus someone who's drunk versus someone who's involved in the sale and distribution of alcohol. You know, look, when Budweiser started going down, I was glad. I rejoiced. Why? Because I saw the evil the evil year after year when we would bring students to Daytona Beach and it's not one-tenth uh, back then what it is today and how they were trying to sell their products and make students basically drink and to want to buy their product back on campus and all this free beer and all the immorality. Woe to you who causes your neighbor to be drunk so as to look at your his nakedness. Someone said they felt bad for the 400 employees that lost their job. I didn't feel bad at all. I was glad. I hope the whole, com- I hope the whole company impl- implodes. Why would I feel bad about people who are engaged in, in leading people into sexual immorality and leading people into drunkenness? So there's a line where you draw on some of these issues. There are people who are divorced against their will all the time. They don't want to divorce. But if someone, say, is involved in an illicit relationship and wants to divorce his wife over it, that's a church discipline issue. So anyway, I hope that helps. Let's go to the next question. All right,
2: 843-525-1859. Our next question comes from Ralph out of Ohio, and he would like to know, what does it mean that we are created in the image of God?
0: Well, that comes from largely, I mean, it's it's noted in places like you know the book of James, but it comes from the book of Genesis. Let me just turn there, and the image of God in the Latin Bible, it's Amago Day, and so you will hear people say we're made in the Imago Day. and remember the Latin Bible is the translation that was used for a thousand years. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. By the way, this immediately separates man from the animal realm. And so the evolutionist says that we're a highly evolved, sophisticated, two-legged animal that has evolved into humans, not according to the Bible. And so the Christian that teaches theistic evolution, be it Tim Keller who taught it, he knows better now, um, you know, they were in error of what God's Word says. God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. By the way, there's just two genders, not 52 or 102, just two, male and female. So what does the Scripture say about being made in the image of God? Well, in its simplest terms, it means that we're made somehow to resemble God. Adam didn't resemble God in the sense that he had flesh and blood, because God by nature is spirit, and Jesus affirms that, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. He's not discounting, of course, his own deity. Jesus, at one time, in eternity past, existed with the Father, with the Spirit, in without a human body. It's not until the incarnation that that changes. But um, to be made in the image of God, obviously the incarnation had not yet taken place, and so it has nothing to do with flesh and blood. But Adam's body did somehow mirror the life of God, And that, one, he's created in perfect health. He's not subject to death. Um, His body, in some ways, reflects the creative nature of God because all of God's creation does. Um, And so when we speak of the image of God, we we speak that there's a likeness. We also speak that he's volitional. And again, God, when he creates man, he doesn't create him like a robot. He creates him with the capacity to make choices. Then the Lord God, it says, commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. In other words, while there were perhaps thousands of trees that they could eat from, there was one tree they were forbidden to eat from. Had not God given man a choice to disobey God, then man would just be like a pre programmed computer, like a machine. And that's not how God created us. He made us as volitional with the ability to make decisions. Morally, he's created with perfect innocence. Again, a reflection of God's holiness. God says he made this, it was good. He made this, it was good. He made this, it was good. And when he makes man, he says it is very good. And so even today, to some extent, even in our fallenness, unless our conscience has been uh, seared like with a branding iron, unless it's... um, become calloused. Man tends to recoil from bad, evil behavior, and he praises good behavior. That's changing because the culture is becoming more and more callous to sin. And so Isaiah can say, woe to you who call good evil and evil good. And that's where we're at today. And God created man with the capacity to have fellowship with him. And so here in uh, Genesis 3 and in verse 8, it says... Uh, they heard the sound of God uh, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And so that verse implies fellowship, intimacy with God, and that's how um, God created man. And even when he made uh, Eve, he kept saying, it's not good, it's not good, it's not good. And then he said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, six times over. And then he says, it's not good for man to be alone. And so he creates Eve for a sense of fellowship, and Adam is created like Eve for a sense of fellowship with God. He breathed into his nostrils, the Bible says, the breath of life. And so you never see a dog or a cat on their knees in prayer. No, only people have that capacity, and that's all part of being part made in the imago day in the image of God. I might suggest to this caller we have a... Institute of Biblical Studies, it's available at Search the Scriptures. I teach it on a master's level, and there's a course on anthropology. Anthropos uh, speaks of man. Uh, The secular realm stole the word from the realm of theology, but when we speak of anthropology, it's the study of man. And we look at what it means in far more depth than I've answered in the last three minutes here, what it means to be made in the image of God. In fact, that's one of the... uh, suggested assignments. People take the course, uh, they write papers, they read books, and one option they have is to write a paper on what it means to be made in the image of God. Good question. Let's go to the next one. alright
2: two five one eight five nine. right, um, Our next question, Pastor Carl, comes from Buddy out of River, Kentucky. He would like to know, could you please recommend some sources on the different crowns that will be given to us and he writes that he is also a pastor of a church and greatly values your insight.
0: Well, I appreciate that. Um, it's Buddy.
2: Yes, sir, Buddy.
0: Yeah, and so uh, Buddy might want to look at a course that we offer at Community Bible Church. It's called Basic Discipleship. There's, in fact, a number of churches in America that are using it. The only requirement I have is that they do not take the copyright or change the material, but they reproduce it in full. It's all for free. So for instance, there's a message that I give in that series, it's called Developing an Eternal Perspective. And in that particular, it's a 45 week course, I should say, and it's structured so that people can start any week they want. So when someone comes to Community Bible Church, if they've never been discipled, and that usually represents about 80 to 90% of the people. If Billy Graham was right, he said 90 to 95% of those who've been genuinely saved, regenerated by the Spirit, haven't grown. They've remained babes in Christ. And that's how most people are delivered to us if they come to CBC and they've already met the Lord. It's an exception to the rule when someone comes who's solid, mature, grounded in the great theological truths that are necessary for the maturity that belongs to the fullness of Christ. And so. One of the topics that usually takes about three weeks to cover deals with developing an eternal perspective. And there we deal with the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment of the just, in deference to the great white throne judgment, the judgment only that believers face. And we talk about, well, what things constitute eternal reward? And, of course, the rewards, among other ways, one aspect of rewards is they're given as crowns, not to wear on your head, but to cast at the feet of Christ. And there are five crowns that are probably representative maybe of many more crowns, but there are five that are specifically named in Scripture, and we cover that in detail, and so that's where I would point you. Good question. Let's go to the next one.
2: All right, Pastor Carl, our next question comes in as Anonymous from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They write, I have two questions. My son is questioning how to know which Bible is the right one as his in-laws are Jehovah's Witnesses, And also, my sister is experiencing ongoing marital problems with an abusive husband. She leaves for a short period and goes back, eventually, to broken promises, and the cycle continues. He threatens divorce, but she is a Christian and struggles with forgiveness and divorce. She watches services online, but does not have a church nearby or a pastor to confide in.
0: Well, there's certainly some church in the Myrtle Beach area that you can go to. Now, you might have to go north, you might have to go south. Uh, But there are some churches there. Lay that aside. Let's deal first with the JW question. For a long time, the Jehovah's Witness used actually the American Standard Version, the ASV. Some used the King James. Most used the American Standard Version of 1901 that was updated in the 50s and became the new American Standard Version, which I've already mentioned. The problem with using the ASV is they ended up having people who actually read it than simply the Watchtower literature, and some people ended up having their eyes opened and realizing that that Jesus is Lord, that he is God in human flesh, one of the major tenets, among other truths, that they deny. So they created their own translation. It's called the New World Translation. And the New World Translation was done just by a couple of people. They will not reveal to you who it was, though one of the major uh, founders of the Jehovah's Witness, um, Taz Russell, admitted under oath in a court of law that he knew absolutely zero Greek. And he didn't. And clearly the people who were engaged in that translation didn't know any either. Because if you were an atheist, if you were an agnostic, you would know that translating John 1-1 violates the way they do, violates the Graham Sharp rule, a basic grammar rule that is found in the New Testament. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The um, New World Translation done by the Jehovah's Witness say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was uh, with God, and the Word was a God. That's not what the Greek New Testament reads. And again, if you are an atheist or an agnostic, but you knew Greek, you would know that's an impossible translation. So you can, one, maybe stir a little thought by saying, you know, there's about 250, it's actually more than that, but there's about 250 English translations of the Bible. Many of you know maybe some of the more popular ones in Uh, they're on your mind. You know the ESV, you know the King James, uh, old, new, you know the Net Bible, you know the NIV, you know the RSV, the new RSV, maybe you know the Christian Standard Bible or the CJB. Sometimes I'll put the CJB Bible up there and someone asked me one day, is that the Carl J. Brody Bible? I said, no, those aren't my initials. That's the complete Jewish Bible Then there's the, you know, the Holman Christian Standard. Then there's the CSB. There's the Lexham Edition. Uh, So there's a bunch, my point, of um, versions. And there's a difference technically between a version and a translation. A version, like we say, the King James Version. We say the New American Standard Version, the Revised Standard Version. It's not done by a singular person, say, like the Living Bible though he consulted with a few people. Uh, it's done by a whole group of scholars, sometimes 100 to 200 scholars that are involved who know the language well and who wrestle with the texts in creating an accurate translation of the English tongue. So when you just think about those, there's probably, uh, my guess is uh, just with the translations I've named, over 1,000 people involved, that would be conservative. Remember, there's over 250 English versions that have been available since the English tongue has been uh, translated, and none of them, not one, translate, say, John 1.1 the way they do. So that should send a message to your son that this is erroneous, not to mention that even out of the New World Translation, you can show gross error. Look, uh, they deny every major doctrine. Sometimes when I've dealt with Jehovah's Witness, I'll deal with just how they think a person is made right with God. And their answer in one word is works. The answer to to the New Testament believer is grace. Works being the fruit, but not the root of conversion. And so what am I trying to do? I'm trying to knock them off kilter a little bit. I'm trying to get them to think. And again, when you dialogue with a Jehovah's Witness to get them to think you have to come to an agreement because everything you say they are thinking of their answer because this is how they're trained when they have their Thursday night meetings across America. They're going to say this here's what you say and so they're formulating in their mind their response and they're typically not really listening to you. And so actually a Jehovah's Witness told me many, many decades ago, he said, what you need to do is make an agreement. I'll listen to you for 10 minutes uninterrupted if you'll listen to me for 10 minutes uninterrupted. That way you can at least get them to think. And so what I'm trying to do, say, to show that even their own Bible teaches that they're saved by grace alone and that works are just the fruit but not the root of conversion. I can say, look, if you're wrong on this, maybe you're wrong on some of these others. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he, contextually God in human flesh, you will die in your sin. If you deny the deity of our Lord and Savior, you are a sure unbeliever. So they're not Christians. I'm not judging them. That's a judgment the Bible has made. Uh, you might want to provide for your son how to know how to prove the Bible is true. It's a chapter I wrote in um, in Answers in Genesis apologetics series, but if you call search the scriptures, we'll be happy to mail you a free copy. In reference to your sister who has a husband and and what's the uh, reason she goes back and forth?
2: Uh, she's experiencing ongoing marital problems with an abusive husband.
0: Yeah, so this is the counsel I would give you. Um, I would say this, Paul says to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And again, if the shoe's on the other foot and that the husband should not leave, and again, it's the word for divorce, divorce his wife. Um, The flip side of a different truth is given in verse 12, to the rest I say not the Lord. And then he deals with a person who's married to an unbeliever. So on the one hand, he says, uh, not I, but the Lord. And the other hand, he says, not the Lord, but I. In other words, in the first indication of what a person who's married to a difficult husband does or vice versa, it's a subject that Jesus addressed, and Paul's just echoing it. On the second issue, when you're married to an unbeliever, he's saying, well, there's not a specific place in the Gospels you can go to where Jesus addressed this. But I'm going to speak on his behalf as his apostle, and so there are sometimes difficult marital situations where maybe the husband is physically beating up the wife, hurting the kids. Maybe he's an adulterer and potentially bringing disease into the marriage bed. And God gives permission to leave, but not to remarry. If she does leave, she must not remain. She must remain unmarried. Why? Because that's what Jesus taught. If you divorce your husband, you marry another, you commit adultery. That's what he said. So it's consistent with what Jesus said. It's consistent with Romans 7, 1 through 4. It's consistent with Scripture all across God's Word. And so there's sometimes you need to draw a line. And what I suggest is what I call a planned separation. You just don't leave. You say, husband, I'm going to leave, but I want us to work on the home, and I want us to get biblical counseling during this time. And I say biblical counseling... You need to be careful because there's a lot under the label of Christian counseling that's not Christian counseling, it's just psychobabble and it doesn't produce change. And so that's where I would start, but you know, look, if he provides for the kids, he's not harming anyone, he may have a hateful temper, but he doesn't hurt you. Sometimes you have to suffer unjustly and it's in that context you're going to win him. Uh, Abuse is like our very broad umbrella. And someone draws a line everywhere. So I hope that helps. That's the short answer. God bless you as you seek the Lord for his grace and his mercy.